Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Stephen Hansen, Associate Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simon Fishburn, Editor-in-Chief. Lauren Martz, Senior Editor. Elena Koch, Executive Editor. On this week's pod, Biogen announced the coming retirement of its head of R&D, Al Sandrock, as the company struggles to get Alzheimer's disease therapy at a helm off the ground. The incoming head of R&D may have an opportunity to reset Biogen's pipeline priorities and reduce the company's biology risk by looking to diversify beyond neurology. We'll also be checking in on one of the most closely followed immune checkpoint targets, Tigit, which has been quiet since a big data readout last year, but more has been coming from the fall conferences. And we'll also have a look back at some of the highlights from BioCentury's eighth annual China Healthcare Summit, plus our emerging company spotlight highlights, Acelerin and Selexon. So starting with Biogen, I'll set the stage here for us. So as the outgoing head of R&D, Al Sandrock, looks to retire at the year end, Biogen finds itself in a difficult spot. Sales for its best-selling products, Spinraza or Tecfidera, are at best flat. And despite the commercial launch of Alzheimer's disease therapy at home in the U.S., there's little prospect for European approval. Sales are minimal, and the company's stock price is nearing levels from March of 2019, when Biogen announced the discontinuation of the phase three trials for Adahelm, which basically indicates that investors are currently ascribing nearly no value to the product. The challenge is that for the past 10 years, Biogen has been increasingly focusing its R&D strategy in neurology, a therapeutic area with huge opportunities to fill unmet needs, but is rife with biological complexity. So in 2010, former CEO George Skangos made the call to cut the company's cancer programs and given a lack of competitive resources in that space, focus on neurology, immunology, and hemophilia. But that hemophilia arm of the company didn't last very long, as it was spun out into BioVerative in 2017. And with immunology becoming something of an afterthought, with only two clinical immunology programs outside of MS. There was reasonable thought process, though, behind these decisions. Our broad understanding of how genetics impact disease pathology has grown exponentially in the past 20 years, and Biogen expected that knowledge growth to continue in neurology. The neurosciences have seen their fair share of scientific advances, such as Biogen's Spinraza, just not at the same pace as other disease areas. So while Biogen may have gotten the overall trend correct, they may have just gotten the timing a little bit wrong. A recent example of how complex the biology may be is Biogen's recent readout for its tofacerin, an oligo that failed in phase three to treat SOD1 mutant ALS. Selena, I knew you've been following Biogen's developments in this space pretty closely. So what were sort of the expectations for this program and some of the other sort of genetically defined settings that Biogen has been pursuing? Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's one of the themes that connects some of Biogen's programs in neuroscience is the looking for a target with human genetic validation behind it. Amyloid has that to an extent, although obviously they tested Adahelm in the general population, not presenilin carriers per se. But when it comes to SOD1, the target of Topherson, or C9 or F72, which is another program they have, these are, these are a little different. The biological rationale was even higher. So for, for Topherson, they basically reduced it to a monogenic disease by enrolling patients with SOD1 mutations. Patients with ALS don't really know why they have it. There's still a lot of mystery behind the pathology. But for this subset, they at least know the initial driver, and then they targeted that driver in those patients. More than that, they used a validated modality with the same route of administration that they had had success in the past. So here I'm talking about an ASO. Spinraza really validated 
the approach of using ASOs intrathecally to get them into motor neurons. And in ALS, you're also targeting motor neurons, although a more diverse pool of them, not just the spinal ones, also the cortical ones. So there was just every arrow was pointing in the right direction. So, you know, on paper, it was a very rational move. And I think it was pretty heartbreaking and surprising when it didn't, didn't pan out. I think there are two ways that I kind of look at this, and we've discussed this, obviously, internally. One is that on the face of it, Biogen made a lot of really good or well-founded decisions. I'm not talking about a strategic decision to go into neuro. That's, that's on them. They know it's tough. Neuro just is tough. But it's not like they made wrong decisions about their programs or you look at it and you go, why did they think that? On the other hand, it really seems to be, especially the Tofuson data, the case that having a single gene, a monogenic basis for treatment isn't as simple or as straightforward as you would think. So this idea that you've reduced your biology risk because you've got a known target. And if you fix that, and therefore your risk is executional, right? Your risk you normally think about is whether you can actually deliver your product to the right place. But in fact, what we're learning now is that even the monogenic disorders could be way more complex than perceived. Is that right, Selena? That's right. And especially in these age-related diseases that come on, you know, take a long time to develop versus something like SMA, which is a childhood disease. And you might think the brain is just so much smaller then, it's easier to penetrate more of it. You also might have a bigger window for being able to treat. There's just a lot of unknowns, even in monogenic diseases, especially in adults. Yeah. And it just, I guess to me, it highlights that if you're struggling in an area where you had such strong rationale, you thought from a genetic standpoint, you had this very targeted, very genetically defined approach if that's your best way to try and reduce your risk, yet you still have this significant amount of risk. And then you look at the rest of Biogen's neurology pipeline. I mean, they're in areas like depression. I think we're still in a situation where you run five or six trials and hope that three of them work, right? I mean, we still have a hard time really understanding what, what really drives that disease. And so that's one of their big programs, partnered with Sage there. So to me, it looks like they've got a lot of, in addition to what Simone said around executional risk and all these other risks that we take on in this industry, when you add on that layer of the significant biology risk that still seems to be their neurology, it just feels to me like it might be a real opportunity here for them to try and try and lower that risk for themselves and, and look elsewhere. Not you necessarily get out of neuro. You yeah. argued earlier, Stephen, that the trends were moving in the right direction at the time when they made these decisions and they weren't rational mm. to a, an extent, but they were too early. Mm. Is, is it still too early? I mean, we've seen investment in neuro ramp up so dramatically in recent years. Yeah. That's the question, right? Is it about to turn a corner? Is it going to be well, another 10 years I, I think, of the same? Yeah. I think <laughs> yeah. also, to be fair, we have to acknowledge that neuro is, let's, let's go with at least two big buckets. One is the psych area and the other is neurodegeneration. And obviously they've got a foot in each of those. But depression, I don't think anybody believes that depression will be solved by a single gene that needs fixing or a single protein, you know, right. even at best, it's going to be polygenic or multicausal. Um, the neurodegeneration ones seem to be more straightforward, but I think there's a uh, learning actually that the monogenic 
disorders can be more complex is going to have ramifications well beyond Biogen. They're not going to be the only one that stumbles on that. And so I think it's going to change other companies' way of thinking about risk. Yeah. Well, that's where most of the money has gone. Genetics has been leading the way there. And a lot of it's been in neurodegeneration, not so much in neuropsych. Yeah. And looking at their pipeline, what surprised me, I mean, so they've got what are potentially, so outside of neuro, the little bit of other stuff they have. I mean, they have two phase three programs in immunology both in lupus that are both potentially first-in-class assets. And so obviously with the history they have in MS, I mean, it just, I mean, we'll see how much leeway the incoming new head of R&D gets in terms of deciding what direction they go, given these guardrails where we are still a predominantly neurology company, but you're able to go in any direction you want within those guardrails or whether they're given the latitude to go further. But if they are, um, at least on the face of it, it seems like a logical direction would be pushing out further in immunology. Stephen, one more thing I think we have to acknowledge is that people have been, I don't know if I would say calling, but commenting for a long while that Biogen is probably due some kind of acquisition, probably should be looking for some M&A activity in that arena. Is that correct? And do you have any comments? What did Biogen's response to you? Did they indicate as such? Uh, they did not give me any sort of clear clear view as to whether that would be. But I, yeah, I think that that's probably a fair, given where they're sitting right now. I mean, given their valuation. Yeah, I would expect What you're saying is they've got money to go out and buy busy. something. They do. They, they have some. They're not as flush with cash as you would maybe think at the last, I think it's September 30th. They had like three and a half or four billion in cash. I can't remember exactly. And seven billion in debt. So they're not exactly swimming in money but they've got plenty of room where they could leverage out if they needed to, if there was something that they really wanted. I guess I see them as this being a bit of a crossroads here for them, and I'll be curious to see what direction they go. Well, they have been building out their modality toolkit, which mm-hmm. could take them in a lot of directions. They've been building up in gene therapy, but applying gene therapy to something like tau or some other target where you have to get it intervene in like large parts of the brain is still a real technical challenge. Delivery is just not that good yet with the existing vectors. So you can imagine it might make more sense to take some of those tools and apply them somewhere else. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, now I think we should maybe step over here and talk to Lauren, who I know has been working on a story looking at Tigit here. We haven't heard much about Tigit really since there was a big data readout last year. I believe it was at ASCO last year. So Lauren, what's going on with the target? What are we seeing from the fall meetings? Yeah, I think it's safe to say that there still isn't that much going on with Tigit clinically. Everyone is waiting to see the next data for the leading programs to see if that really exciting phase two data for Tiragolimab holds up. That's Genentech's anti-Tigit map. Uh, and I think we could say that at the fall conferences at SITSI and with the abstracts that we've seen from ASH, a lot of people would probably agree that there hasn't been too much headline news. This week, we'll start to look at some of the trends in the abstracts to see what's coming up next. And TIG is one of the first things that we looked at. And what I found interesting when I looked at all the abstracts discussing TIG this year is that it looks like the pipeline is changing. We've been following the pipeline for next generation checkpoints for years. I think it's been at least five years. And the TIGIT pipeline has always been one of the bigger ones. And what's been unique about it is that it's been almost all maps. So there hasn't been a lot of modality diversity in TIGIT. I guess maybe it's the fact that there was some really promising phase two data and the target had that validation. Now we're starting to see 
at least in these abstracts and with a couple of recent deals and pipeline announcements that the Tigit pipeline is diversifying. There were some fusion proteins in the Sitsi and ASH abstracts, an engineered toxin body, which was kind of interesting, uh, a bispecific, but it's sort of a, a broader trend that we're seeing across checkpoint inhibitors looking beyond the maps to try to find ways to overcome resistance and, and reach more patients and become more effective. I think people have been looking for a long while at what's going to be the next checkpoint inhibitor after obviously CTLA-4, but then PD-1. There's obviously not just like a flood of them, which is what people at one point a couple of years ago thought. How is it going broadly in bringing new checkpoint inhibitors? Has some of the shine worn off yet? Everyone's still looking for one, but I don't know if the goal has changed. I don't know if anyone expects to find the next PD-1. I think everyone is looking for a way to make checkpoint inhibitors more effective for more patients. I mean, PD-1 is the standard of care for so many cancers now. It's, it's a way to make it more effective. And TIGIT got a lot of attention because it was the first of the next generation checkpoints to show an additive effect with a PD-1 but it's actually not the most advanced. Lag 3 emerged this year as, I mean, it was actually, it's been kind of quietly moving through the pipeline and there was some great data at ASCO this year from BMS. And so BMS has a, a PADUFA date in March for relatlimab. It's anti-lag 3 antibody. And again, I don't know if they're trying to make this the next PD-1 or if it's just a way to make cancer immunotherapy more effective. I don't know what the monotherapy plans are. The, the language will start to change, though, that it's no longer about the next PD-1. Another question I have is, everybody knows that it's all about combinations or the future is, is certainly in combinations. Is it still going to be the case that you want to see monotherapy efficacy in, you can't just get by with efficacy in a combo? I think everyone probably wants to find the next PD-1. I don't know how realistic that goal is, especially in the world where combination is everything. So the PD-1s came into a very different landscape. And now that they're standard of care, I mean, they're going to be combinations yeah. by default. Exactly. Well, then, I mean, by next PD-1, I'm wondering, so you mean like showing a real impressive, I guess, jump in response. And I mean, so yeah, you, a step change. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So, so if you're already, if you're working on a baseline of 40%, that's a pretty significant step change. You'd have to find something that would get you into the, probably into the 70, 80% range if you wanted to call it the next PD-1, I would think. Or if you could find a way to get that level of efficacy in a different group of patients, you know, if mm -hmm. there are yeah. so many patients who aren't responding to PD-1, if you could right. find the golden ticket for all of those other ones. Right. So I think if you go back to, to, I mean, PD-1 was effective in 30% of patients. So I think the idea is if you find another PD-1 that's 20% or 30%, I think it's also partly a step change in the number of patients you reach and partly a strategic land grab. We wrote this for our back to school. Ketruda Merck has just done a masterclass in how they've used accelerated approval to get Ketruda expanded into so many indications. I think the next PD-1 is also a partly a business proposition as well as a therapeutic mm -hmm. one. Yeah, something else that was in the abstracts that I thought was interesting was that there was a lot of mechanistic insight into these targets. So checkpoints their applications go beyond just developing checkpoint inhibitors. I saw quite a few that were looking at TIGIT knockdown in cell therapies. The idea that some of these checkpoints are the reason that 
cell therapies are becoming exhausted and limiting efficacy, NK cells in particular. So that's another interesting upcoming application, I think, that we haven't thought too much about. Some of the abstracts, we're knocking them down with CRISPR and other ones with base editors. It'll be interesting to see which checkpoints that become really important in cell therapies too. Yeah. And are they doing multiple? Because I know people have been manipulating either PD or one or PD one, whichever one it is, in mm-hmm. cell therapies as well. Are they now like also getting rid of Tigit on top? Yeah. Of a lot of these yeah. studies are early, but I think one of them knocked down like six or seven checkpoints. So uh, they're sort of trying to find the, the best way to edit the cells without doing too much editing, but making them more effective. Excellent. Great. We'll move on now to our next topic here. We've just wrapped up our eighth annual China Healthcare Summit, but all the content will be available online through January 15th. Register now and get up to speed on everything you need to know about the China biopharma ecosystem as told by the KOLs who are making it happen. You'll also get two exclusive reports from our Insights partner, McKinsey. Visit our website, biocenturychinasummit.com to register and see the full agenda and list of presenting companies. Simone, what stood out for you from the China Healthcare Summit? Thanks, Stephen. Well, you've pointed everybody to where they can find the content. So two or three things. There's a couple of real focused tracks. So there's a career presenting company track, and then there's a global presenting company track. So there are presenting companies that have been curated by BioCentury and selected by BioCentury. And these are companies to watch and they're usually quite early stage. So those are worth looking at. There are also a couple of workshops. There's a very interesting capital markets workshop. And of course, there's what Lauren presented on. And this is in fact outside of the paywall, which is a real world evidence seminar that went along with a survey we did. And we got a lot of really, really positive, interesting feedback on that. And one of the incredibly interesting things there is this region. Lauren, you can talk a little bit about that. I know you've mentioned it before, but just to remind people, there's a Boao region. Just tell everybody how that works in terms of real world evidence, what they're doing there. Yeah. So it's a medical tourism pilot zone. And in this region, Hospitals are allowed to administer drugs that have been approved in other regions, but not in China. So I think it's the US, Europe, and Japan. And the idea is to get Chinese patients access to therapies that they wouldn't yet have access to. But what it also allows is the collection of data on those patients treated in this very connected, centralized network of hospitals within the region. And it just enables pretty efficient collection of real world evidence. That's also something that can then feed into Chinese approvals. And it's something that the government is encouraging Western companies to seek Chinese approvals based on the collection of real world evidence within this region. And one of the things that I think has captured people's attention about that is that even if this particular concept isn't necessarily scalable, they are addressing one of people's biggest concerns about real world evidence, which is the consistency of evidence, the reliability of it. And so they've sort of created a, as you say, a pilot zone. But I do think it's an innovative way of going around addressing that particular question that hopefully globally people will benefit from. And then the other thing that I think we're seeing, and what was interesting about this is that it came up actually in the scene setter presentation and the scene setter analysis that we performed and completely separately came up in a podcast that Jeff did a special podcast. We have a couple of those that are also open access on the China conference. And that is how platform companies are really taking off in China. 
Many companies in China made their businesses with the in-licensing strategy and even building up portfolios by in-licensing, which gives them a quick path to market. But what we're really seeing now is new companies that are building platform technologies that are being funded based on platform technologies to create an ongoing source of homegrown or when I say homegrown inside those companies products. And what is also interesting is these are, a lot of them are really innovative platforms themselves. So I think we're starting to see, you talked about a step change before, Stephen, in another context. I think that what we're starting to see is a real step change in China in the innovation landscape there and it reaching a level that it, it hasn't it hasn't displayed before where people used to think about China as an area of if not me too's me betters but these are really not a lot of these are really potential first in class concepts so i think that that's an interesting thing that you will see as a thread throughout the conference and i encourage you to continue we're going to continue it by essentially keeping an eye on that and keeping an eye on the amount of innovation coming out of china So all our audience know it's not just deep pockets just throwing lots of money they're actually throwing money behind some very interesting ideas. Well thank you Simone and as uh, as I said all of that content will be available online through the middle of January so please do check it out. So now we have our emerging company profile spotlight and there are two companies this week that we'll be spotlighting. First is Accelerant which is a LA-based biotech that last week raised $250 million in a Series B round to support the company's in-licensing strategy, which started with a deal that brings in an IL-17A inhibitor from Swedish biotech Affibody AB. It's the first deal of what's expected to be many, according to co-founder and CEO Xiao Li Lin, who was previously EVP of R&D and CSO at Horizon Therapeutics. Accelerant's financing included a large slate of VCs and crossover investors. And second is Selexon, another China company coming from China. Selexon is building a suite of AI-driven drug development tools to accelerate the pace of drug discovery. It was founded in 2018. The China-based biotech has so far developed four AI models covering virtual high-throughput screening, drug target interactions, and affinity predictions. Selexon has raised 31 million US dollars from investors Eight Roads Ventures China, Sequoia Capital China, Quan Capital and MSA Capital. And finally, coming up this week on biocentury.com, in addition to Lauren's review of innovation around Tigit that we previously discussed, we'll also be having a snapshot of how companies reporting data at Sitsi are advancing their next generation TCR-based therapies. And Simone will be having an exit interview with Al Nilam's outgoing CEO John Marigonor. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcasts. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. <laughs>